You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's Saturday. It's 5 o'clock. My name's Andre Pru. And I'm Maroki Tong, and we're hungry. We are hungry. I love it when we start the show like this. I'm always hungry. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know what? I think we're going to do something. A, a lot of people, it, it's that like that coffee shop tradition. What are you watching? What are you watching? Because you and I, even though we're constantly scouring Toronto for the best restaurants and scouring Niagara and beyond for the best drink, we're watching stuff about food. Well, and it's funny because it's clear that we both watch stuff about food, or at least I have more or less told the audience over and over and over again that I watch Top Chef and I love watching Top Chef, which inevitably means I watch all of the Food Network. I've been watching the Food Network since 2009. Um, I I used to like watch every single show that would have interest to me until I I realized, you know, there were things that I had that were more favorites than the others. But, you know, a lot of that is rooted in reality, right? Like like reality TV, celebrity chefs, these are people grounded in real life. But I think you and I both watch a lot of food fiction as well. I love food fiction so much. And and the reason I wanted to do this segment is, uh, you know, I... I've been doing a bit of travel for my work, so I had a chance to watch um, season two of The Bear. It's about to be released in Canada. Um, season one of The Bear, uh, you know, it's a it's a show about um, a restaurant in Chicago, sort of ill fated in season one, but the episode ends. The, 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 pardon me, the series ends on a really high note, and it kind of sets up season two. Um, I needed to talk to you about this because uh, I watched season two. It's a 10 episode run and the last four episodes of the season, I basically cried my way through them. Um, You know, when you watch a show with really great character development, but the way the season goes is, uh, okay, I'm sorry. If you haven't watched season one of The Bear, these are going to be spoilers. So turn the radio off right now. But it's all about the main character of the first season trying to set up a fine dining restaurant. And he kind of works with his ragtag team of misfits that he accumulated in season one. And, you know, the big themes of the show are you're never too old to learn something new. Um, You know, even his curmudgeon cousin, who is kind of an obstacle all along the way, finally steps up and... It's hard to watch the show without feeling really inspirational. And the thing is, I'm a big fan of Ted Lasso. And the thing is, Ted Lasso is a little bit schmaltzy in terms of like, it's so sweet. It's almost saccharine in how they (laughs) deal with the positivity in it. But I also really like it because like, if you're having a bad day at work, you throw on an episode of Ted Lasso, you're good to go. You watch an episode of The Bear season two, you have to think a little bit, but it's also like, oh man, there's some inspiration right there. I think inspiration is why we watch it. I think it's why we mm-hmm. watch a lot of different forms of television, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you even think about just like as children, we watch superheroes because we're looking for that optimism. We're looking for um, something great. We're looking for the opportunity to, to enact positive change. And whether it is racing or whether it is Pokemon battling, we're looking <laughs> for that source of inspiration. Yeah. And usually a show like, you know, for food, that's just another vehicle, right? If you think about movies like Chef, Chef that's my similar, favorite, right? The idea. Yeah. It's like the idea of like, like showing, you know, finding, Funding. It's about family relationships. It's about healing old wounds. It's about discovering another part of yourself at another point of your life. Um, I wanted to kind of draw attention to fiction that may that doesn't necessarily even use human actors per se. But I definitely grew up with a lot of anime, and yes. one that I 
ended up watching over the last couple of years and we mowed through all i think it was five seasons it's probably one of the longer animes that i've watched today given the limited amount of time i usually have for leisurely activities <laughs> but you can find the first season on netflix it's called food wars um shokugeki no soma and it's it's literally like a food cooking competition. So if you think about like Pokemon fighting, now you're just, it's, it's like watching Food Network or Iron Chef, but it's with anime characters and they're battling. And it's just so absurd because it's anime, which means that you can just go so much further. Yeah. With the way, with the, way the judges react to the cuisine. And I'll, I'll just fall on, give, it, give you the warning, guys. It's anime. Like their clothes like rip off. Because <laughs> just well, yeah, I, okay, I, I haven't watched it yet, but you, 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 you got me to watch. You got me to watch the trailer. Yeah, it's it. It does seem like it's a little bit of a sexy food show. But it's not. The funny part is, is that the thing I love about the way anime has gone. You guys are gonna get a little bit pop pop, pop culture education from me here. The way anime has gone, it's like they understand now. They acknowledge that all these tropes existed, and a lot of <laughs> anime, what they do is they lean into it heavily because now it's parody. Oh. So they're just like. Oh yeah, it's all about boobs. Here's boobs. And it's just it's literally a joke. It's it's kind of a joke like you're doing it for funsies. But the thing is is that, you know, like not only that it's a cooking show, but there's these huge like relationship buildings between all these characters about school students, about bonding, like about a, a group of outcasts who maybe aren't seen as prestigious or it's about like rising to fame when you're not coming from a prestigious household, right? Like you're not born into a wealthy family. You can still have a have an opportunity to attend something and become <laughs> really, really successful. And it's watching people kind of like overcome the odds um, to be great. So it and sounds just, like and formulating relationships along the way. And there's, there's a lot of that. And I, I think, you know, I, I mean, like I said, we blew through all five seasons and you actually don't manage to root me from the television that easily these days. All right. All right. 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 So, so you talk about like overcoming the odds and coming from nowhere. Is there a talking rat in Shokugeki no Sama or no, am there's I not just... that kind of fiction. Okay, okay. It's still grounded with like humans. <laughs> a little bit. Of human. Okay. So it's, it's, so it's not like the Japanese version of Ratatouille. Not the Japanese version of Ratatouille. No, this is much more grounded in like real care, like human characters having interactions. All right, all right, all right. So you know, what, you know, I think you and I might need to do a bit of a deep dive on the influence that Japanese pop culture has on food because the other thing that I recently watched, um, and it was in the Apple Apple TV, so it's on Apple TV with their top ten most viewed shows was Drops of God, and uh, Drops of God is actually va based on. A really long-running manga. Uh, so manga is basically a Japanese comic book. I know I'm, I'm dumbing it down. I'm sorry if you're a serious manga fan and you want to email me, uh, you know, Andre at AndreWinerview.ca. You can tell me how wrong I am, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but If you want like, to be corrected, it's manga. Okay, I'll, you know what? I'll take that. I, I did not do that part on purpose. But it's, it's essentially um, a comic book in Japan that was so influential, it actually drove wine sales in Japan. And Apple TV managed to adapt it into uh, a mini series where i guess long story short the world's most famous wine critic dies and his wine collection is worth a fortune and for his child to inherit said wine collection worth a fortune they must identify the greatest wines in the world according to them only the child had a fractured relationship with their father so they need to um reconnect through the will and blah 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 um i'm trying to not give away spoilers on this but it's <laughs> dramatic it revolves around wine it's about relationships with parents um but 
the Japanese version, the manga Drops of God is funny and emotional and melodramatic and over the top where the Apple TV version. So if you're familiar with it and you haven't watched the Apple TV version, it's quite a bit more dramatic, but I actually enjoyed the dramatic interpretation of it because I felt it made the story more plausible because like, as we mentioned, talking about uh, Shokugeki no Sama food wars that you can see on Netflix, it's a little over the top. Um, I, I don't think Japanese fiction can be anything but over the top. It's true, but if we want to talk about over the top and drama, and you know, talking about when we when we talk about humanity, we're talking about positive and inspirational humanity. They've also used food to reveal the darkest sides of humanity. The menu oh was one of the no. films that sort of no. really hit the market no. with the storm, and it was all about no. just sort of like tearing it. apart capitalism nope. and you know, like wealth, and it's all <laughs> there's a lot of death in it, and it's like talking about you know, like the fine dining industry and who it caters to. And um, really, kind of reveals like the and the darker side of humanity as Ralph Hines proceeds to like burn down everything around him. And then, of course, the other one that hit the world by storm. And I didn't watch all of it either because I'm a little bit squicky with this kind of stuff. But Hannibal, um, Hannibal, the they talked about the meticulous plating of the food that was so refined that they ended up publishing a cookbook about it. I can't handle anything where you eat people. <laughs> so I'm but out for both. People, Andre was about the plating. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Anyways, coming up after the break, uh, it looks like the cooking model that we talked about earlier might be taking off and some more home cooks are throwing their hats in the ring of uh, some pro or semi-pro cooking. Yeah, so we're going to be digging into all the things that are coming out of the oven on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I am Andre Pru. I am joined by Maroki Tong. Always. <laughs> and uh, we've been scouring the deep depths of, uh, of what is going on in the city um, to bring the Tasty Eats to your table this weekend. Yeah, and I guess the interesting thing about this particular segment, Andre, is that in some ways, um, trying to find these Tasty Eats are going to be harder than normal because they may or may not actually have a storefront that you can walk past. Exactly. And I mean, if we go back in the Wayback Machine, uh, go to the Global News website and listen to some old episodes of Tasting Together. Earlier this year, we spoke with uh, the CEO of the company Cookin, uh, which is basically letting home cooks, you know, play pro, play pro ball, play semi-pro, like put together some really interesting uh, meals and cook them out of their home kitchens, um, you know, food safety, like they've done all their checks and balances with that. And it seems that this model is is kind of taken off a little bit because uh, we saw that Toronto Life recently put an article together of uh, seven of Toronto's best micro bakeries. And when I clicked the link, I was just like, okay, where are these tiny bakeries? Because like, wouldn't it wouldn't a micro bakery just be like a very small bakery or something? Yeah, and it's looking like the majority of them don't even have a storefront. A lot of them are cooking right out of their home kitchens, um, perhaps showing up at pop-ups or farmer's market. But the majority of them is still just either renting a commercial kitchen and uh, or, or making it at home and then selling online. And actually, when you showed me this article, it was very interesting because recently when I was um, up visiting my family in the Vaughn area, I was trying to purchase some items from a bakery. Okay. And I and I didn't I don't know the neighborhood super well, so of course I put, I opened Google Maps. This is the the way I search uh, food and drink. So if anyone's looking for a hack on how to look up where to eat, sometimes I was just like open my Google Maps, see where I'm sitting, and then I'll look up like bakery or restaurant, just see what pops up in the area. Yeah. And um, 
So I looked up bakery and one particular bakery popped up and I realized after scrolling around that this bakery had no storefront and that was actually just a girl cooking out of her home. She was in her 20s and essentially like kind of started making home-baked goods and people liked it. And then she's got a little like home kitchen. She only takes pre-orders. Like you can't buy anything day of. You have to contact her, submit a form, but then she cooks and you just pick it up out of her home. Did you do that? I did not because I needed items that day. And actually, this is an this is this is actually a good one to talk about for micro bakeries is that um I find that the a lot of the bakery, like a lot of bakery goods, a lot of pastries are items that you sort of buy impulsively. At least that's something I buy very <laughs> impulsively. And it's something that you walk past the storefront and you see a photo and you're like, wow, that looks good. I'm gonna go inside and buy myself a scone or buy myself a little like little tiny cake. Um, it, it, I find for me, unless it's for a large occasion, I rarely pre like I, I rarely kind of act proactively around baked goods. And so in that moment, you know, the idea that I need to contact her, it's especially in kind of like um a, a very like low tech way. I think she required you to maybe even call her for same day orders. It just seemed like a lot of effort and it was easier to kind of walk <laughs> to another walk, go to another bakery that already had a storefront. I am so sorry. I do want to support her. Actually. Oh, no, that's why you know what in the future. I'll think about it. But it's like this is like that whole like switch between. Okay, micro micro bakeries are wonderful because it's an opportunity for people to get their products out uh, without a lot of overhead costs of storefront because storefronts would be a massive overhead cost for uh, an industry that is reasonably low margin, quite low margin, actually. But on the other hand, as a business, it might be really difficult to reach the people. So it's like a catch-22. No, it's completely a catch-22. And I think you you highlighted like the challenge and, and probably the number one challenge that a lot of people who get their... Um, their teeth cut in in getting into the food industry this way is that most people are doing um, you know impulse buying to get delicious baked goods like you know oh I got invited to dinner tonight I need to pick up a dessert etc. Et um, I mean I guess I know that I'm an anomaly I've said many times on the short on the show my wife is um, a pastry chef and. Um, she is one who obsesses over Instagram and like, I still remember the early days of Instagram where, you know, you would make fun of people who were just posting pictures of food. My Instagram is basically all pictures of food and pictures of wine. And it's the same thing. Like I also love going on Instagram and following people who take great pictures of, uh, food and wine. And, um, I'm, I'm a religious list shopper. Um, I'm sure we'll probably unpack that at a later at a later point if inflation keeps going the way it's going about whether or not you're a list shopper for groceries. But like I am a religious list shopper. Like Saturday, I make my, my grocery list for the week. I plan my meals out and then I go to the grocery store and I try very hard to not buy anything on the list. But the thing that I think is a little different in my house is we will go out of our way to buy a special loaf of bread or plan our week around, oh, we're seeing that um, Lev Bakery who were not on the list, Toronto Life, you missed out big. Lev Bakery is at the um, Sororan Farmer's Market Monday at 3 to 7 p.m. I hope you're making, I hope you're writing this down. Okay, <laughs> you in the car, great, I'll fantastic. i got a cold note from you after the show. <laughs> Lev Bakery is a, a Jewish bakery that does pop-ups. He makes an amazing fugas, which is um, kind of like a, a, a hybrid between a breadstick and a focaccia and olive loaf in it and like I dream about it and I discovered Lev from going to farmer's markets. But now it's one of the things where when I plan to go to farmer's markets, I plan on buying, buying his stuff. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like I have to go try uh love bread, especially because of the, the, the Jewish background there, given that Eric <laughs> is Jewish. I'm like, dang, you, you know what? Like 
I'm not um, a huge bread eater. I mean, part of the reason is due to the fact that I am gluten intolerant. But when you share with me that the loaf of bread is extremely special and then there's some tie-ins to uh, the cultures within our household, now I definitely have to go try it myself. Um, I think like I, I, I the, the thing that you brought up about Instagram is incredibly interesting because I think maybe the time I did make a lot of purchases from micro bakeries, I do have a friend who has a micro bakery, or at least uh, she used to. I think she doesn't really do it anymore because things have opened back up and she's gone back to her day job, which is in um, events management and hospitality, is that during lockdowns, Instagram became our storefront. Yep. So that allowed a lot of micro bakeries to probably surge up in a way that they otherwise might not have been able to compete as easily. And maybe... Uh, maybe like the the answer to someone who's opening a micro bakery is ensuring that their online presence is really strong because if someone's not gonna or your website right like if you're not if you're gonna go to your website if you if you if I don't have an opportunity to see your product in advance or look at it and I do make some food decisions because I think part of the storefront is that you're seeing tangibly in real life what the product looks like you know what you're about to buy whereas if you're ordering online you're really trusting that the product that someone is showing pictures of is the one that they're going to deliver and not part not just like the one that they built for instagram per all se. Right, all right so shamelessly follow at andre wine review which is my instagram at nine ounces please for maroki you and i are both pretty religious about posting food and wine uh drinks when we are at an event or checking out something new and hopefully beyond uh what you're listening to in your car right now we'll be able to uh connect you to some good eats just to roll through the list because i know i said the list and we kind of buried the lead a little bit um it's on torontolife.com bad attitude bread manal bashir pastry cosmo baking studio wildflower baking smiley drop which has some super cute pictures of loaves of bread with like smiley faces in them and butterflies and other other designs reverie deli and toski um one other notable omission from this list i would add mr hadrian verrier who you can find him at the brickworks farmers markets uh saturday mornings but lately he's been taking a break he makes the best almond uh, croissant in the city i'm not sure if uh, chef romain avril would agree with me and that's a callback to another previous episode of tasting together a gentleman from toronto trying to find the best croissant in the world uh but yeah i think we've given out a solid shout out to uh nine micro bakeries that could use your help <laughs> micro bakeries. I'll give a shout out to Brett at all. I don't really know, like I said, if she's doing anything these days, but you know what? The pictures of her bread are absolutely delicious, mostly sourdoughs, and she does like the artisanal cuts on top. So if nothing else, you can check out her page so you can look at all the pretty bread or the memories of. And uh, maybe if uh, she decides to open up special menus for special occasions again, you can order from her. Coming up after the break, since we're talking about how hard it is to open a storefront, uh, I want to extend a congratulations to Odd Duck, which is opened Justin Kitchener, so moving down the 401 corridor, and we're checking them out. And the philosophy that they have between uh, the philosophy that they have of the no tip model. Ooh, I love it when we get to unpack tipping and paying people a livable wage. That's coming up after the break on 6:40 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Here on Tasting Together, I'm Maroki Tong, along with my co-host Andre Pru, is always here to bring you the skinny on all things food and drink in the GTA. But we're going to roll west on the 401 quarter to Kitchener-Waterloo, which is actually notably also my hometown. Yes. And also, for a little while, it's been a culinary destination. I think it was um, the Berlin 
that was open for a little while. That was, you know, really hard to get reservations to and people were making the trips for. But uh, something new has popped up on the radar. Have you seen Reservoir Dogs, Maroki? A long time ago. And I will say I probably covered my eyes for a lot of it because I'm <laughs> I'm scared of violence on you know, film. I don't want to play the, play the clip again, but one of my favorite parts of the movie is when uh, Mr. Pink talks about how he doesn't tip at restaurants. And, uh, you know, I've been working in talk radio for a very long time. I've played that clip a million times. And if you're sitting in the car right now, do not turn the dial because this is another tipping segment, but it's not a typical tipping segment. Uh, we saw that there is a new restaurant uh, opening up that is moving or that is opened up that has moved to a no tipping model. Yeah, and I think we shouldn't be making the assumption that people wouldn't be interested in hearing about this, Andre, because I think it's a movement that has been increasing in popularity or have not been stem uh, stirring up a lot of conversations. And given that I'm, sh I'm sure a lot of customers at restaurants probably feel some sort of anxiety over how much to tip, this is probably a good uh, lesson as any for them. It's like, hey, you want some advice on how to kind of treat hospitality workers with respect well now it's we're going to make it really easy we're going to take it all out of your hands with a no tipping model so joining us is Wes Klassen who's the general manager and one of the co-owners of Odd Duck Wine and Provisions in Kitchener in downtown Kitchener they actually just opened up their spot Wes is also the owner of Purple Teeth Consulting which is a boutique wine consulting business so thanks for joining us Wes thanks so much for having me and taking some time I guess the the, the first question is You've opened up a restaurant with a no tipping model, which is obviously very uh, popular when you're traveling in Europe, not so much in North America. Uh, what What is going on with this? Why did you do this? <laughs> I am getting uh, laid off at one point in the pandemic from a, a cocktail bar I was working at. Um, you know, I've been doing this for well over two decades and I, and I got to thinking, um, you know, I'm bored. I'm squirreling away at home. I'm, you know. ADHDing hard and thinking, well, like I, I want to be with people. I want to do something. Um, how do I get back into the industry? I started listening in, um, really uh, digging deep into, you know, why people aren't going back uh, to the industry, and and uh, you know the the easy surfacey stuff um, that you just see if you just glance at the why. Um, it's like, well, yeah, we got to find another job. You know, we, we got laid off. So we just, we, we fell into other work. And uh, then, you know, here we are completely changing uh, professions. Uh, but the people that are really, in, you know, investigating and listening into and unlearning uh, from is people who weren't going back because of the culture, the extreme chaotic and uh, abusive systems of racism and misogyny lack of psychological safety in the workplace and time and time again this stems from tip culture and so in our early beginnings of chatting about odd duck that was something that like uh i, I was adamant about is we we cannot contribute to this culture from uh continuing on or existence so it was either having a no tip model restaurant or, or not doing this project at all wow mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I know this is something that some Toronto restaurants have tried, and according to them, they've had a hard time retaining staff. And I, I, na- I kind of navigate this, the I guess peripheries of the hospitality industry a little bit. And I know one of the biggest pushbacks I've heard up against the no tipping model, and it actually shocked me personally. Like it shocked me personally. I remember when they first started bringing it up, I was super on board myself. As even as a customer, I was like, that, "That's great. I don't have to think about it. I know that the workers are being paid a fair wage." But then I'm actually hearing servers saying. Well, now I'm going to lose out on the chance at a really amazing tip. And I suppose that that's been one of the feedbacks I've heard in Toronto. So I know the restaurants only just open in um, in downtown Kitchener, which is a huge congrats from, from me, by the way. I Thank cannot you. wait to get down and eat all the food and drink all the drink. Um, you. Have you heard feedback like that? Or do you think that it's a little bit different being in Kitchener-Waterloo versus Toronto? Like, do you think there's a difference in geographic locations or maybe it's just like a cultural change that we're looking at moving into? So ironically, that question got asked to me last week and it was a, a regular of mine you know he was saying to his partner across the table you know west's been everywhere uh, around this region you know we've known him you know for for decades and and he was like this is really hard for me to not be able to tip and what i what i said to them is um i mean we are we are paying our staff a thriving wage so we are a living wage um business at a champion level. So it's it's over and above uh, living wage. We've linked up with our local uh, chamber of commerce and we're doing um, benefits for our team, which is kind of unheard wow. of, especially with a team of you know 10 employees and less, including us owners. We are so focused on mental uh, health uh, for hospitality initiatives. You know, my business partner, John and I, we, we also run a nonprofit. Um, called Rest for Restaurants that uh, raises awareness for psychological safety and hospitality. Um, so, you know, if people want to to leave extra, they really believe in what we're doing, we welcome that. But for the next several months, we're funneling that extra, any extra funds towards Vinequity. And then our, our staff, um, if you don't know what Vinequity is, um, it's an organization uh, that was uh, founded um, right after George Floyd. Um, and it was uh, created for people who don't look like me, who aren't a cis white male that that don't have all of the privilege that I do and don't have the resources and access. So people of color, people who are part of the LGBTQ2S uh, plus community who don't get to start where I start and don't have those opportunities. So ultimately my goal here at Odd Duck is to eventually work myself out of a job and um, push people in, in front and give them opportunities that, uh, you know, I, I feel like they, they should have. Um, tips are rooted in North America. They're rooted in uh, racism and uh, misogyny and, and all of those things. So for us, we, we're just taking a stand um, and it's going to be a, a retraining of, of the guests to, to understand that. Um, but that's, that's where we're coming from. Wes, do you think the guests want to be retrained and, uh, like, is, is there an appetite to see change on the consumer side? All, all I can say is we, we want to be a place that all humans who want to be here can see themselves in our restaurant. Um, I know that our food and maybe our approach is, it's definitely not cookie cutter, you know, our menu changes all the time. So it's already a bit of a whimsical push for people to, to be here and have a menu that changes so often with, uh, you know, 
we people continually ask me, well, what kind of style are you? And I say, well, we are hyper local. I mean, we have farmers who are uh, queer led, black led uh, farms, women led farms that are all, you know, three acres or less and have been in business, you know, less than five years. And everything we do is is surrounding our ethos. So if people, I, I guess we're not retraining people, either people buy into it or not. And this won't be a place for everybody, but people in the community who who have embraced this and who have been our biggest cheerleaders, you know, they, they're coming back time and time again, and we've only been open two weeks, so. I actually really appreciate you saying that you're following your ethos to the core and you're not here to cater everyone because I think sometimes everyone's always afraid to take a stance for things that they believe in because they want to cater to everyone. But I've, I've always said, if you want to actually encourage a safe space for people who are marginalized or for LGBTQ, and it's sometimes as small as putting a rainbow flag up on your window, it makes a huge difference for whether someone knows they can hold their girlfriend's hand, like uh, like whether a woman can hold a, a girlfriend's hand or a male can hold their boyfriend's hand in a store or that they can walk in without feeling excluded. So I think it's actually really great that you stand for your ethos so much. Wes, um, wh where can people find Odd Duck Wine and Provisions if they're coming down to Kitchener or if we have someone who's a Kitchener right in the car, you know, who's listening to AM640 on their commute, where can they find you in downtown Kitchener? Yeah, we are at 93 Ontario Street South, uh, right across from the old bus station. Uh, there's a great spot right next to us. It's called The Surf. Um, there's another amazing restaurant up the street called The Grand Trunk Saloon. So yeah, we're, we're surrounded by great businesses. Go grab a coffee at Lucero, pick up some veggies and, and fun little treats from Jordan at Legacy Greens. Um, go get a fresh new tat and uh, a beard trim <laughs> at uh, Marlowe. Um, and then go to the park and stock up some stuff in our bottle shop and go to the, the park and, and have a little sip and feel good after your haircut. <laughs> Thanks so much for the time, Wes. And uh, also, if you're listening to the card, make sure you follow Wes on Instagram, Purple Teeth Consulting, one of the most entertaining people that I follow. So I've given that shout out there as well. Coming up after the break, we are going to cool off a little bit on what has so far been a pretty hot summer and take a look at what's happening in Niagara next week with the Cool Climate Chardonnay celebration and uh, unpack what is Cool Climate Wine. I feel like Andre is going to be taking off his Edgar McSnob hat and donning his Captain Chardonnay cape. And uh, you don't <laughs> want to miss that. So we'll see you after the break very shortly on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I am Andre Prue. I am joined by the talented Maroki Tong and the uh, mellifluous tones of Global Newsroom's Danny Longo is about to join us. How are wow. you guys? How are you doing, Danny? <laughs> I'm doing much better now and after that introduction. I try. I try really, really hard. But I'm just, I'm in a really good mood because we're about to talk about my favorite event that takes place in Niagara. I'm a fanatic about it. And that is the Cool Climate Chardonnay Celebration. International Cool Climate Chardonnay Celebration, I4C. Yes, I4C. And uh, the reason why I love it is um, going back to the beginning of my wine writing career, I think it's one question. And I'm sure there are people in the car right now. If you're one of these people, I'm talking to you. And this is your fault. That wine sales are not great for Ontario wines at the LCBOs. People think that Ontario wines are not as good as the rest of the world. And one of the best things about this particular event is it brings winemakers from all around the world down to Niagara, specifically focusing on Chardonnay, and they pour their wines shoulder to shoulder. 
And if there's anything that will erase any preconceived notions you have about Ontario wines being in- inferior, it is this event. Because the uh, Ontario wines always show very well and go toe-to-toe with some of the best in the world. Yes. Absolutely. And this is the first time I I think you're going to be the expert for Dan and I in this conversation, Andre, just because I know you've gone to I4C in the past. I've attended a couple of the virtual events in 2020 and in 2021, but I have yet to attend my very first in-person one. So I'm super excited to be attending my first school of cool um, this coming <sighs> this coming Thursday, I will say. And maybe the one thing we should mention is that we're talking about cool climate Chardonnay here. Yes. So maybe this is a good time to sort of share with our listeners the difference between warm climate and cool climate because um i will say we're saying we're going toe-to-toe with producers from all over the world but you know what one region we're not going toe-to-toe with them against is california right okay so thomas batchelder is a well-known winemaker in ontario we've mentioned him on the show before um we haven't had him as a guest because he does talk quite a bit and i think it would be impossible to keep him to a 10-minute segment but when he talks about the people who attend I4C in particular, the definitions of what makes a wine region cool are latitude, altitude, and then I think Thomas's favorite thing is to say attitude. So if you go down to I4C, you will see the occasional uh, Californian wine show up, but they definitely work hard to uh, maintain their cool climateness. And Maroke, I think you, you would agree with me on this, that the signature of a cool climate wine is its acidity. It's acidity and that the fruit is more bright as opposed to incredibly jammy. Yes. You're getting, you know, like, I think if we want to kind of give, uh, you know, one of the things that people often ask me about when it is always like, what notes do you get in the wine? Like, that's one thing they always ask me as sort of like a wine advocate, a wine expert. They're always like, what notes do you get in the wine? Because for them, they aren't parsing out those notes. So if we were to describe a lot of cool climate Chardonnays, I think I think we could all agree that you probably are leaning more notes of like sit, like a little bit of like lemoniness and apples. And then, of course, we always have the oak impact of let's say vanilla and spice however for something that is in a warm climate chardonnay you're probably going to be talking a lot more about tropical fruits so like mango and pineapple and and stewed or cream uh, yellow, corn like, like, cream yeah, corn is like pretty bruised, popular out there bruised peaches that kind of that kind of note yeah i mean but it also it's also the cool thing about chardonnay in general is just how versatile it is i mean it's it's something like when people ask me if i prefer red or white wine for the longest time and it's taken me a long time to kind of come to this because i love warm climate and cool climate wines uh and i love red and white wines but i find that a lot of people don't necessarily actually prefer red or white wines when you unravel what it is they actually enjoy drinking i can generally fall in whether they like cool or warm climate wines you know, like I said, like going back to the beginning of, of this segment, talking about many of the people who think that I, I, I mean, I still hear it to this day is that Ontario doesn't make good red wine. And if you're a fan of California, if, if Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon is is what your go to wine is, you will be disappointed by Ontario Cabernet Sauvignon because we just do not grow grapes the same way. It's not saying the wines aren't good. They're just very different. Danny, do you find that you are a warm climate Chardonnay drinker or a cool climate Chardonnay drinker? Or do you drink all the things Chardonnay? I'm definitely you. I mean, I like I love my Ontario wine. So yeah, when it comes to Chardonnay, I'm I'm drinking I'm drinking more cool climate Chardonnay. And that was a question I was going to ask. What exactly is cool climate? And we know Ontario is a cooler climate. I assume France, uh, any other regions in Europe that uh, 
Northern Germany. Italy, Germany, okay. Germany, mm. uh, and I think uh, like northern and northern France as well. Like I guess like France because like, if you go down to Provence, it's considered warmer climate. So yes. you know France is one of those. Whereas you move further south, like Rhone, you're actually talking about warmer climate wines. And if you're talking about Alsace and Burgundy and Bordeaux, then you talk about more cool climate. But actually, this is a great lead in, Danny, because that's the mm. wrench I'm about to throw into into the into the kind of um I don't know the the pile here. Because when folks say they don't like Ontario wine, but if you let's say you drink New Zealand wine, um, if you're saying I like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or I like New Zealand Pinot Noir, that's a cool climate region. And actually, one of the cool things about IPRC is, like you said, you're bringing countries from all over the world. So some of the other countries that are going to be participating is New Zealand, Germany, France, of course, and actually Chile as well. And I think a lot of people think Chile is warm climate, but it's more cool climate than you think because it's a long, skinny country. And a lot of it goes quite far, is quite far from the equator. Well, it's the other thing, too, where earlier when I said altitude factors in, when you get to places like Australia and Chile, um, when you're dealing with a lot of mountain ranges, uh, the higher up the mountain you go, the cooler the climate gets. And you can really, I'm, I'm not going to say emulate, but I'll, I'll say like you are able to hold on to your acids. You're able to uh, achieve like that cool climate winemaking style. Yeah. By climbing so, a mountain. I, mean, I guess... Yeah, I guess the long-winded answer, Danny, to your question about, you know, what, like, what constitutes cool climate, it could be, you know, you can get really broad scope with a country, like the countries that are uh, higher, like, a, like, higher latitude and are further away from the equator. Generally, you know, you already intuitively know that they have a shorter growing season, probably a cooler winter, cooler fall. So, like, like I said, northern France, like Germany, um, or, you know, even us in Canada, and then, there, then you get into these other factors like altitude. So the higher up you go, obviously, you're going to get cooler temperatures <laughs> and, and factors like that. So basically, so, to answer I, the question, <laughs> cool climate wine regions are like the French language. You have your general yeah. rules where I, I think it's safe to say if a region gets cold in the winter, maybe not as cold as Canada, you could consider them a cool climate growing region. But now let's go on tasting together and listen to the rule of 100 exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I even know that even in places like Ontario and I think in other wine growing regions as well, sometimes I, I this is what I thought about when you said Thomas talks about attitude in winemaking because yeah. some people pick early as well so that the grapes are a little less like ripe and that kind of holds on to sort of acidities. And that's the thing. A winemaker can make a decision of when to take the grapes off the vines. You can either leave it hanging so that it becomes really jammy, really, really ripe or really high in sugars, or you can take it when it's a little bit lower just so you can get some of that crunchiness in there. And the longer you let fruit hang, the more acids you tend to lose, generally speaking, which is why for a lot of people who think that they don't like Chardonnay, they're probably picturing what, what we jokingly refer to um, in the snob world as Chateau 2 by 4 where, you know, it's these over-oaked, low-acid Californian wines, which I'm not going to lie, I still kind of like once in a while, even though I drink a lot of hoity-toity Burgundy in my house as well. So I'm incredibly forgiving of my Chardonnay. As, as in, <laughs> I don't know if I'm Captain Chardonnay, but I would say at least I'm sidekick Chardonnay. I do love my Chardonnay through and through. <laughs> I do, and I'm rather forgiving of oak as a result. I do still remember, though, uh, as you and I like began doing content together like well before the radio show, getting a, a phone call in either November or December, and you basically giving me crap for ruining a Californian wine for you because I we'd <laughs> gone through so many Ontario wines together. You were just like, this wine doesn't taste like what I remember it tasting like anymore. 
palettes change. <laughs> palettes change. Well, maybe as we wrap up the segment, since uh, I foresee is coming up, we can shout out all our favorite um, Ontario Chardonnay as that is on our docket or like we've been loving lately. Since all <sighs> three of us love Ontario wine, this is an opportunity to kind of, if you're listening in a car and you're looking at giving um, Ontario Chardonnay a try, we'll give you some recommendations so you have no excuses. Um, I My my almost always go-to is a toss. I think they tend to like have a general, like they do a great job with their shards. And uh, yeah, it's probably my go-to. Great choice there. Mine does involve you having to go down to Niagara to pick it up, but uh, 16 Mile, uh, right close to the city limits of St. Catharines, offering some of the best value uh, on the market. And every Chardonnay they make is just a solid banger. Oh, that's a good one. Actually, that would have been one of my tops. But I'm going to spin towards Prince Edward County and give a shout out to several wineries. Clausen Chase, a Long Dog, and Light Hall has made some Chardonnays that really resonated with me. And Prince Edward County, the hipster sister of Niagara, making some really intense, cool climate production out there. That is just beautiful. I don't like that you just made us look bad by picking three, where you made me and Danny pick one. <laughs> Well, that's the way we're going to end the segment tonight, folks. When Hiroki <laughs> kind of outshines Andre and Danny with Chardonnay, go try some Chardonnay. Try some Ontario wine. Check out I4C if you're looking at doing something cool in Niagara in the coming weeks. And uh, we'll see you next Saturday on Tasting Together at 5 p.m. On 640 Toronto.